Acts 19:21 to 41 is our text, but we'll read verses 28 to 34 to begin. So zoom in with me, Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. The Bible says, When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Let's ask God's blessing. Oh God, please we pray that you would take this ancient text, this inspired text, and apply it to our hearts. Lord, help us to recognize in our own hearts where we might be saying great is Artemis, great is whatever false god we have created, and to fix our eyes back on the true God, the triune God, the only true and living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's story, the end of chapter 19 in Acts, is a story about telling the truth. Telling the truth. And that might not seem like a big deal because we know that we should always tell the truth. But you and I live in what some sociologists call a post-truth society, where truth is all relative. If someone really feels in, in their heart of hearts that 10 plus 10 is 11, then who are you to say that they are wrong? But that's not so with us. As believers in the Lord Jesus, God has spoken. And he's given us truth. And that truth is non-negotiable. God's truth is truth, whether you believe it or not. You may have seen those bumper stickers that say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I'm sorry if you have that bumper sticker, but there's a problem with that. It really should say, God said it, that settles it. It doesn't matter whether or not you believe it, it will be true for all of eternity. What we just sang will always be true. God is the triune God of praise. I know there's so many other offerings in our world of this God or that God or this ideology or that ideology. But when we come together and God's word is exposed and the truth is laid bare and we say, thus says the Lord, that means this is the truth, period. But there's a flip side to that, isn't there? If we're saying and claiming that this is true, what does that mean by extension? It means everything else that contradicts God's word is false. And that's hard to hear. And before before you say, that's not hard for me, I love to tell it like it is. How many of us really like confrontation? Don't raise your hand. But how many of us really enjoy, when you know you're going to have a difficult conversation with someone, in one of my jobs, we called the difficult conversation a difco. And you would say, I'm about to have a difco with so-and-so. You don't look forward to that. Maybe some people look forward to that. 
I, I suppose we all have our sins. Some people might be naturally contentious, but most of us, I think, don't look forward to those abrasive, confrontational sorts of meetings. Because sometimes the truth hurts, right? Oh, I know truth sets us free. Jesus said the truth will set you free. How freeing it is to know that God loves us. How freeing it is to know that Christ died for us, right? The truth sets us free, but the truth also stings. Because as the word of God is preached and we recognize and come face to face with our sins and our fallenness and our shortcomings and and how weak we are, many of us don't don't embrace and say, tell me more. We, We want it to stop. And we may be tempted to do that for others. Out of, out of notions of love and tolerance, we might sort of take off the rough edges when we give the gospel. We may talk only about God's love to the exclusion of His justice or His holiness because we don't want to offend. I remember hearing a, a, a self-proclaimed minister years ago on Larry King Live. Larry King is a secular Jew. He's not a Christian, but he recognized logically. He said, if Christians are saying that Jesus is the only way, then logically, all other ways are wrong. And he said to this minister, right? And the minister could not get himself to say that. But he said, wait, Larry King, again, mind you, not a believer, saying, wait a second, but you're saying Jesus is the way, right? And so the, the minister said, well, yes, he's the way for Christians. But whatever the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists want to do, that, that's up to them. This man was only giving half the truth, and half the truth is no truth at all. I understand his desire on national TV, not wanting to offend anyone. But in doing so, he winds up offending the Lord Jesus Christ. So many of us might be tempted to say, I don't want to get into all of this, who's right and who's wrong. I understand that. But if you are an ambassador for Jesus Christ, and all of us who are in Christ are, we have a message to tell the world. And it is good news. It is the good news that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ. It is the good news that sinners can be saved. It is the good news that forgiveness is found in the blood of Christ, but it is found in the blood of Christ alone. And if it's found in His blood alone, then yes, that does mean that any other attempt to try to appease God, any other attempt to try to earn heaven, any other attempt to try to achieve nirvana or go to paradise will fall flat on its face. And if you want to be truly loving, you and I will tell the truth. Because to leave people alone on their road to hell is one of the most unloving things you can do. In this chapter... It was evident that when the Christians preached the gospel, they were simultaneously saying, if God is God, then Artemis is not. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. You don't even have to say it. I don't have to stand here and name every one of the false gods and say, not that one, not that one, not that one. All I have to say is Christ alone. And automatically, that puts everyone else as false. This is a case study of telling the truth. And I'm not going to stand here and say, look, and I already read the passage, look, if you tell the truth, everyone will just receive it. So don't worry. They'll pat you on the back. 
You saw the opening text. Mass confusion, right? Chaos, anger. Are we as Christians willing to tell the truth even if it hurts? Well, I think in our own fallenness, we might tend to not want to do that, but that's why God gives us His Word to inspire us, to motivate us, to compel us, to teach us how, in following the example of the apostles, we can be truth-tellers in a supposedly post-truth world. So let's look at this text, and we'll begin in verses 21 to 22, and see how we got to this place. Just by way of remembrance, last week we talked about how the gospel impacts minds and it impacts ways and it impacts communities. And we saw the positive effect of that in our last text. Actually, look at verse 20. Before we get to 21, look at verse 20. It says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's where we ended last week. We ended on a high note. The gospel went forth, people were getting saved, the church was being established. Isn't this wonderful? This next episode doesn't seem quite as wonderful because the gospel does have an impact, but it has an impact that might, on the surface, seem quite negative. Verse 21 to 22 now. The Bible says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Just a few notes. This is background information that Luke, who's the author of Acts, is giving us. And from verse 21 to the end of the book of Acts, we see Paul on a journey to Rome. Paul wants to go to Rome. And in verse 21, it says he resolved in the spirit to do that. Now, different translations might differ, but here in the ESV that I'm reading, Spirit is capitalized because it is the Holy Spirit who is leading Paul. And it's something we have to remember. Whenever you read all these names, Paul and Erastus and Luke and Apollos, do not forget that the main actor of the book of Acts is God himself. God is the one guiding his church. We've seen this very clearly. They want to go to Asia. God says go to Macedonia. God is the one who told them to be witnesses of Him throughout the entire world. The book of Acts could be titled The Acts of God by the power of the Holy Spirit through His church. So when Paul says, I want to go to Rome, he is following the prompting of the Spirit of God. But Luke just kind of gives you that little hint. Paul is going to Rome. But in the meantime, he's going to stay in Asia for a while. That's why it says in verse 22, he stayed in Asia for a while. So he sent Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia on the way to Rome. Uh, Just remember this again, that church planting, missions, evangelism, it's always a team effort. Paul sees Aquila and Priscilla. He sees Timothy and Erastus as extensions of himself. He doesn't feel like he has to be everywhere at once. And we ought to have the same attitude, right? That we, uh, not one of us is indispensable. We work together. We just actually did a message on this Tuesday night about working together in our Tuesday night Bible study. It's posted on Sermon Audio. I recommend you listen to it and you'll get more of the flavor there. But that's the background. Paul wants to go to Rome. He's going to pass through Macedonia. He leaves two of his helpers in Macedonia and he stays in Asia. He stays in Ephesus. So what does he see in Ephesus when he stays? That brings us to number two. The Christian message threatens idolatrous 
prophets. Look with me in verse 23 to 27. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is what they called Christians back then. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship." Luke tells us that the Christian church in Ephesus, in their preaching and teaching that Jesus Christ is Lord, caused no little disturbance. That's his sort of understated way of saying things are about to go down. Things are about to get a little rough. The community is starting to realize that the message that Paul is preaching is coming into direct conflict with the God that the Ephesians worship. Who is this God? Her name was Artemis. In Greek, that's what she was called. In Roman or Latin, she's called Diana. This is a false god, a goddess of fertility, so-called the goddess, the mistress of the wild beasts. She was thought to be a virgin who helped women in childbirth, a huntress with a bow and arrow, the goddess of death. In the ancient world, there were 33 shrines dedicated to this Artemis or Diana. But the major one, the biggest one, was in Ephesus. And this temple of Artemis in the city of Ephesus was the largest building in the Greek world. And so you can imagine, if you were an Ephesian, the pride that you took in your town. Because your town had the biggest temple of the god of the ancient world, the ancient Greek world. She was a major attraction to the city of Ephesus. Just like when you think of casinos and gambling, you think of Las Vegas or Atlantic City. Or you think of the World Trade Center, you think of New York City. When you want to worship Artemis in all of her splendor, you go to Ephesus. The big temple. One commentator says the Ephesians were well known across the Greco-Roman world for their enthusiastic devotion to the goddess Artemis and for the magnificent temple dedicated to her. The temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the largest building in the Greek world, four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was made of solid marble. The dimensions were huge. The altar was large enough to sacrifice hundreds of animals at one time. Not only was this temple a place of ritual sacrifice, it also served as one of the largest banks in the ancient world. So it was a place of money and a place of worship. For many, that's the same thing. The temple was filled with works of art. It attracted thousands of visitors every year, and it brought wealth and tourism into the city of Ephesus. Many of us can relate when we go to see an attraction, whether it be a museum, the Statue of Liberty. There's typically peddlers on the side of the road who are trying to sell you things that they've made or bought. 
little statues of the big statue. And the prices are usually jacked up, right? Because you're visiting and you've got some cash in your pocket and you're going to pay you know, $75 for a little statue of liberty on your way to see the big statue of liberty. Well, Demetrius was like one of those guys. He was capitalizing off of the thousands of tourists coming to Ephesus to go see the temple. And he was a silversmith, so he would make these little shrines of Artemis and sell them. And that's how he made his living. That's how his associates made their living. They made their money off these little shrines of this great goddess, Artemis. So you could imagine his angst, right? Not only was Paul's message in direct conflict with Artemis as a god herself, but if the Christian message was true, there goes his money. Here's the logical order. If God is transcendent and not confined to little statues then the idols are not gods. That's why it says in verse 26, it says, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Well, you and I know this. We've known this most of our lives, right? But think about how scandalous that would be in the first century when people literally believed these little statues were gods. Paul says, no, they're not. That's huge. And if they're not gods, then what does that mean about Artemis? That means that She's not a god. You're saying Artemis is not a goddess? And and if people receive what Paul is saying and they give up their Artemis worship, they're not going to buy shrines from Demetrius anymore, will they? And if they don't buy shrines from Demetrius and from his associates, then their livelihood is threatened. And so something must be done. You see, the gospel threatened their money. It hit them where it hurts. Their money, their wallet... Paul tells Timothy that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. There was so much investment in this false god being true. People do that today, don't they? They invest in their false gods. So much riding on them to be true. And if you come along and tell them, actually, your god's not true, that's a problem. But are we willing to tell the truth? Warren Wiersbe says, wherever the gospel is preached in power... It will be opposed by people who make money from superstition and sin. And not only is our money threatened, our reputation is at stake. What are we going to do with the great temple? The great Ephesus, great city that people come from all over the world to see. The great goddess whom all of Asia worships is found in our city. And those Christians are threatening that. The the message of the gospel threatened everything they knew to be true. Listen, if Demetrius were alive today, he would no doubt have a show on cable news. He would be crying out, he would be selecting edited video about the dangers of this new Christian sect. He would be using fear and manipulation to, to bring his, his, his listeners into a frenzy, convincing them that this movement must be stopped before it was the end of Ephesus as we know it. That's basically his message. If Paul wins, it's the end of Ephesus as we know it. Well, Demetrius doesn't have a video camera. He doesn't have a cable news show. But he had a platform. And scripture tells us there's nothing new under the sun. And fear will always sell. So what's the result of his fearful message? 
We see in point three, chaos, confusion, panic, anger. We already read this to begin the message, so I won't read it all again. But in verse 28 and verse 34, our book ends to this passage where the people are enraged and they cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In verse 34, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. As people are listening to Demetrius's fear-mongering message, what is their response? Their first response is to simply dig in their heels and not yield an inch. Oh yeah, you tell me that Jesus is God and Artemis is not? Here's my response. Great is Artemis. Shouting. No, no ability to reason or, buckle or, or, or to engage. Just buckle down and shout louder. Does that sound familiar? Waving flags in our faces, shouting people down who disagree with them. No actual engagement with arguments. We see this all around in the context of, of today's false gods in our society. Think about it. One of the biggest false gods in our society is the god of sexual appetite. All sorts of perverse deviations being flaunted in our faces. So much so that even if you engage with well-thought, researched, reason engagement that comes from a heart of love and grace, is still shouted down. Shouted down, banned, canceled, stirs up some of the worst reactions. You can cry out to women and men who are about to take take these unborn children into the abortion mill with all love and prayer and sincerity, and yet we have campaigns that, that say, shout your abortion. Just shout it, right? We, we can explain God's design for, for marriage and God's design for biological gender, and they'll just wave the flag in our face and say, love is love. They'll say it angrily, but they say love is love. Or look around the world where militant Islam dominates. How does, it, how does it grow? Through reasoned engagement? Or through fear and threats and imprisonment and murder? Listen, God created every creature on earth to worship. And you worship something. And if you don't worship the true God, you're worshiping false gods. It's no wonder, it's no wonder we feel a certain type of way, a certain type of emotion when someone threatens our false gods. And so the first response that these people had when Demetrius got on his platform is to say, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. Let's shout down the opposition. But the second response, the second response is mass confusion. Right? Verse 29, the city was filled with the confusion. They rushed together into the theater. This ancient theater, archaeologists have uncovered, fits up to 25,000 people. This is a huge place, rushing into the theater. This is an angry mob, a frenzy of people. Verse 32 is almost comical. Look at verse 32. Some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know where they, why they had come together. If you were to ask on an you know, interview, why are you here? I don't know. I saw a crowd yelling, so I figured I'd yell too. That's basically what it's saying. The crowd is stirred up. They, they believe the lies. Their lives were threatened and it just snowballs into a bigger crowd, a bigger frenzy. They're taking out their pitchforks, taking out their torches. And again, we have seen in our country, our own country, even in the past few years, what, what happens when mobs get stirred up, right? In a frenzy. 
after believing fear-mongering lies, they become irrational, completely irrational. And Demetrius rallied them into an irrational frenzy because, again, fear sells. Idols are being smashed. Their power and their money was being threatened. And if you scream loud enough and convince people long enough, you will eventually get your mob. One author calls a mob a, quote, league of frightened men that seeks reassurance in collective action. Do you remember just a few years before this, a mob shouting, crucify him? It's the same response. So what we find here is 25,000 confused, fearful, angry people. There's no way to reason with these people. They smell blood. And it tells us that Paul wants to go in. But he stopped. The disciples stop him. A group of wealthy leaders called the Asiarchs, probably not believers, but reasonable and friendly to Paul, they lend support to Paul as well. So Paul doesn't get to go in. And then the, the mob uh, prompts this man named Alexander. And Alexander is not a believer in Jesus. He's a Jew. But at this point, they're shouting down Alexander too because as a Jew, he's not worshiping Artemis. So now everyone, whether Jew or Christian, that opposes Artemis is seen as the other. Ones to be opposed. Kind of reminds you of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Back in Daniel 3 where all the world was worshiping this golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up. And then all the world was looking at the only three people in the kingdom who would not bow down. They didn't care about their reasons. They didn't want to engage with Scripture or with truth. It was simply, you're not doing what everyone else is doing. What's wrong with you? Into the furnace you go. Today, we may not face fiery furnaces, but we face trials We will be forced to acknowledge flags or raise our fists. Will you submit yourself to the gods of this world? And if you don't, you might be seen as a threat. Are you willing to tell the truth? Chaos, confusion, panic, and anger. And you know, we've seen this in our own society in the last few years on all sides of the political spectrum. It's not just them. It's not just the left. It's the right. Fear sells. The gods of every political persuasion, the gods of every... We we, we could talk about American gods that, that we don't want to talk about, like sports and capitalism, neither of which are wrong in and of themselves but sometimes become the all-encompassing driving force, and sometimes the message of Christ comes into conflict with some of those idols that we set up. Are we willing to lay down the idols? Are we willing to tell the truth? Or will we be like Demetrius and say, well, if this is true, if this is true, then our gods are threatened and work people up into a frenzy. Well, you can see this frenzy is uncontrollable. However... Once again, God puts a little bit of a pause on the frenzy. Look at number four with me, verses 35 to 41. The town clerk reasons with the mob. Verse 35, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. 
For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And that's how the chapter ends. A little bit of a a calm, right, after the storm. We've seen this in the book of Acts several times, where a leader, a non-believing leader, will rise up and use his authority to sort of uh, quell the crowd. The town clerk is the highest official in Ephesus, the highest local elected official. He's sort of like a mayor. I don't really know what his motive might have been. Probably his motive was not to get Ephesians into trouble. He doesn't want a riot to break out because if Rome finds out there was a riot in Ephesus and there was no reason for the riot, then Ephesus could be in trouble. So his motive was not to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But regardless of his motive, he used his authority to stop the crowd. And we could be thankful for that. His, arguments was, his argument was basically three points. Number one, he's, say, he's saying, look, we all know Artemis is true. You, you, don't, you don't have to believe what Paul's saying. Don't you guys know the legend of the, of the rock that fell from the sky? He mentions that in verse 35. The literal translation is the rock that fell from Zeus. There were some who believed, and maybe it was a true story of a meteor falling down, or, or maybe a made-up story, but regardless, there was this legend that a rock fell from the sky, and that's a sig- a signifying that Ephesus would be the place for the temple of Artemis. So he's using this sort of eyewitness account, like Christians might, but in a false way, saying, look, we all know what happened. A rock fell from the sky, so Artemis must be true. You don't have to worry. She's not threatened. She's a true goddess. That was his first argument. His second argument was, if there is a legitimate issue that you have with Paul and the, and the early church, go to court. What, 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 what good are you going to do here? 25,000 people in a stadium yelling and screaming, many of whom don't even know why they're there. That gets you nowhere. So you have a recourse if you want to press charges against Paul, but you've got to do it the right way. Mob rules not the answer. And then thirdly, he said, look, be careful. Because if you continue to riot and mob, uh, riot and and charge uh, Paul and his friends, we, the Ephesians, might get in trouble. Because he says, there's no cause that we can give to justify the commotion. So he's kind of turning the tables. He's like, you're you're saying Paul's causing the commotion, but it looks like you guys are causing the commotion. And you better quit before we get in trouble with Rome. So you see the town clerk is using his authority and his reasoning skills to to quell the frenzied crowd. And and I want to say, thank God. Thank God for level-headed folks, even when they're not believers. Thank God we have the freedom in this country. We can argue until, until the cows come home, or we don't have cows here, until the trains come in. We can argue about, is America a Christian nation? Is America a free nation? And we can have all that discussion. But thank God we have freedom of speech. Regardless of what, whatever the motive was. Thank God there's a court system, no matter how off the rails it might be getting, that we can go to. And we can have people stand up for our rights. Thank God there are people who will defend truth or defend the law of the land. 
regardless of whether they're believers or not. And that's what this town clerk shows us, is that God will use any means to protect His people. He will use a man who has, has no, no desire to worship Christ in order that the church might go on and not cease to exist in Ephesus. Because remember, Jesus promised, the gates of hell will not prevail. Darrell Bach says, when those who desire fairness speak up, the church is protected. Now we know this is not true in every land, because there are places where Christianity is outlawed. There are brothers and sisters right now who don't have the freedom you and I have to sit in a room like this, protected under a First Amendment, to preach what I'm preaching today, in a, in a, in a place that has a ceiling and walls and heat and, and so on. They don't have that They have to meet underground or they have to meet with guards at the door because they don't know if it will be their last day on earth. There are places where there is no fairness, there is no protection. And so I wonder, we as a church here in America, where we are protected, are we taking advantage of that? Are we we grateful for the freedoms that we have so that while it is yet daytime, we can preach the truth? So don't just take this message as tell the truth, but it's also tell the truth while there's still time to tell the truth. Why does Luke put this text in Acts? Why does the Spirit of God, through His servant Luke, put this text? I think one commentator says there's probably two reasons. If you're an early church recipient of this book, what does this book do for you? Reading this passage, how does it encourage you? Well, one, I think, is to try to present a defense that the Christian faith was a legitimate religion and was not at odds with the Roman government. This was the cause of most of the persecution of the early church, being seen as a threat from Rome. So Paul, I mean, Luke includes this story to remind the first century believers that your faith is not a threat to Rome. Even a godless town clerk can recognize that. And the second purpose is to show that, spiritually speaking, the only thing that heathenism, the only thing that paganism, the only thing that false religions can do against the Christian faith is to, quote, shout itself hoarse. At the end of the day, that's all they've got. And that would encourage the early church as they're going through times of rough persecution. To know no matter how frenzied the mob, no matter how high the opposition, no matter how much volume someone yells to shout down Paul and the apostles, that at the end of the day, that's all they actually can do. Because God's truth is God's truth, period. There are no threats to the Christian faith. The Christian faith is rooted in the resurrection. Not in a supposed meteor that fell from the sky. Not in someone's private revelation where he finds golden plates in his backyard like Joseph Smith in the Mormon church. Not a private revelation or visit from Gabriel as Muhammad supposedly had. The Christian faith is rooted in the historically accurate public display of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your faith is historically credible, historically verifiable, It is a faith given to you by God Almighty through His people. And 2,000 years later, we are still here. Where is Artemis? Paul recounts this to the church at Corinth. 
When he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's how Paul felt in that moment. But why? Paul even recognizes, why did God allow us to go through this? He says, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. For he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. God delivered them from that threat, physical threat, not spiritual threat, the threat of the mob in the stadium. And that helped Paul to recognize that his sufficiency is not of himself, but of the God who delivers and will deliver again and again and again. He even tells the Corinthians in verse Chapter 5, verse 32, I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus. Remember that Artemis was known as the mistress of the beasts. So Warren Wiersbe has a wonderful conclusion to this. I just want to read to you because it was so good. Here's what he says. Ephesus is gone. Worldwide worship of Artemis of the Ephesians, gone. The city and the temple are gone. The silversmith's guild, gone. Ephesus is now a place visited primarily by archaeologists and people on tours of the Holy Land. Yet, the gospel, still here. The Church of Jesus Christ, still here. And we have four inspired letters that were sent to the saints at Ephesus. Ephesians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. The name of Paul is still being honored The name of Demetrius is forgotten. The church ministers by persuasion and not propaganda. We share God's truth, not man's religious lies. Our motive is love, not anger, and the glory of God, not the praise of men. This, he says, is why the church goes on, and we must keep it so. Let me wind down now with an application for us today. We talked about the importance of telling the truth. Paul told the truth, and you see what it got him. The way that we can relate to this text in our day and age is to be reminded to have a truthful presence in the community. Do you see yourself as a member or regular attender of this church as having a truthful presence here and in the town in which you live? That your very presence in your apartment building, your very presence in your neighborhood, your very presence on the job is one of truth? See, Wiersbe wisely points out that there's nothing in here about Paul needing to picket the temple of Artemis. I don't get a picture here of Christians with signs saying Artemis is false, walking around the temple. They simply needed to have a truthful presence. Tell the truth. Wherever they went, daily, house to house, in the hall of Tyrannus, in the temple, in the synagogue, on the streets. It wasn't so much the opposition to Artemis, but the truth of Jesus Christ. He says all he did was teach the truth daily and send out his converts to witness to the lost people in the city. And as more and more people got converted, fewer and fewer customers for Demetrius were available. What are the gods that we would like to see put out of business? Would we not want to be such a faithful presence of truth in this world 
that drug dealers lose their customers too? That the multi-million dollar pornographic industry loses their customers? Wouldn't we like to see abortion clinics lose their customers? The gospel is the solution. This is not to say there isn't a time to legislate, to vote wisely, to even protest. But that's never been the church's main focus. The main focus is preaching the gospel and being a truthful witness in society. It was the gospel that threatened and abolished slavery in this country. Which for many was a false god. And money was very much behind that too. The gospel has rescued many people from the clutches of false religion. Because remember from last week, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Nothing else in this world, no other tool in your arsenal of fighting against the forces of evil in this world is given to you and described as the power of God other than the gospel. And so preaching has impact. Teaching the gospel has impact. Inviting a neighbor over to your house and sharing the gospel has impact. But if you're willing to tell the truth, do not forget that that impact will not always be received without a fight. And so I tell you to to warn you, to anticipate this. Psalm 96, 4-5 says, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Are we willing to both praise Christ as the only Savior and thereby draw the conclusion that there is no other Savior? When a culture is enmeshed with false gods, it doesn't allow those gods to topple so quickly without a fight. Listen to what Daryl Bach says. He said, what created the environment for such effective ministry? It was Paul's example. He sought a ministry that engaged the community at large. He engaged in homes, in public places, and in contexts where the city as a whole might hear about it, always in the form of persuasive discussion, not imposition. He argued his case, even going into contexts that allowed for debate and expressions of contrary opinion. He often stayed long enough to have an impact. Listen, I know the temptation is that when you see people shouting, you want to shout them down. If they're going to shout at a volume of eight, we'll shout at a volume of nine. If they're going to mock and deride, then we need to find people who can mock and deride. This is worldliness, brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter what side someone is on. When they take to the airwaves and do nothing other than mock and demean their opponents, and we love it because we want to hear our opponents put to shame. We are engaged in worldliness. The Christian doesn't need those devices. We have the gospel. And God tells us to speak the truth in love. You can love those who hate you. Jesus said that. We don't fight fire with fire. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. So John Stott draws out three principles about evangelism from Paul's style that we must consider. And this is tough because I know that my habit, and I've encouraged you all to, to, let's do as much cold call evangelism as we can. 
Just yesterday we went out into the community. There, there were probably double the amount of laborers, and I thank you all for coming. And sometimes I let that drive and, and sort of measure the level of evangelism in our church, but that's not always the case. And I recognize not everybody is able to do that. I still believe it's helpful to go into the community and hand out tracts and invite people to church, and we're not going to stop doing that. But the most effective way is for us to have that faithful presence. And John Stott says, this isolationist form of evangelism where all we do is bring people to church without any sort of relationship with them is not very effective compared to taking initiative to engage people in their context. That's why it's important that you know your neighbors. You know what they're all about. And you don't see them as simply a project to just convert them. But to truly love your neighbor, God will open doors that you've never imagined. He also says that we, we don't see here the emotional emphasis. Sometimes we, we just rely on emotion to persuade people. We don't need to do that, right? The gospel is already powerful enough. Not to manufacture something, just shout loud enough or cry long enough. Tell people the truth and speak the truth in love, even if they're cursing at you. And number three, he contrasts what we see here with the pursuit of quick encounters and decisions. We're so big on quick decisions, right? You've seen churches where it's come to the altar and pray this prayer and check a box. Welcome to the kingdom. Welcome to the kingdom. We had 12,000 people saved this year. Oh yeah, your church can't fit them. Oh, they don't come to our church. I don't know where they are. But they prayed the prayer. It's not about just getting names. It's not about just, just getting people to check a box. It takes time. Stott says, in the end, effective evangelism is rarely done in the context of guerrilla-like encounter, but usually requires a sustained effort over time. And isn't that what we see here? I know that the book of Acts goes really quickly, and, and he glosses over months, sometimes years, but he makes a note to say, Paul stayed here for a while. Paul stayed here for two years. Paul stayed with Aquila and Priscilla. Paul st- We've got to be in it for the long game, brothers and sisters. It's not going to happen overnight. Yes, revivals happen. We, we see throughout history there are times of revivals. Those times are rare. The way that the church impacts society is more like slow growth. So are you in it for the long run, is the question. Are you in it to be engaged with your community? If you live here in Kearney, with this very town, or if you come here, to be engaged as much as you can when you're here, but also in your neighborhood back home. And are you willing, when God opens the door, to tell the truth without taking off the rough edges? Even if it threatens someone's God or goddess or livelihood. We have a promise, brothers and sisters, as Simon Kissmaker says, when the kingdom of God advances, Satan must yield. But also remember that the prince of darkness does not capitulate without a fight. So brothers and sisters, let this passage with all of its chaos encourage you and me to have a faithful, truthful presence in this community, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our places of employment. And let us so speak the truth in love 
so faithfully that people will begin to see, hey, wait a second, if what you're saying is true, then you're saying my way is not. And let them draw that conclusion and do not fear the ramifications because challenging their idols will come with opposition. But as we saw both in the beginning and the end of this passage, the main actor is always God himself. And he will lead and he will guard and he will protect and he will bless his church as it goes out into the world to rescue people from the clutches of false religion. And so may the true and living God The one who does not dwell in temples made with hands, who transcends this world and is the all-powerful, all-knowing Trinity, be lifted up in our midst and in our community. And may the gospel of Jesus Christ that teaches us that Jesus of Nazareth lived a perfect life and died for our sins and rose from the grave so that those who place our faith in him may be saved and reconciled to God be so lifted up in our church and in our community, and in your personal life, that people cannot help but come face to face with this message. And so choose, as the Thessalonians did, as the Ephesians did, as the Philippians did, to turn from idols to serve the living God. Let's pray.